0: The optimal life,
1: Michael. Welcome to the show. How are you? Doing good
0: today. Thanks for having me on your show.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for being here. So, sports psychology—that's a real fascinating topic to me. Um, I'm always fascinated by the mind, the brain. How our brains work, react to certain different situations, and uh, all these external things that may be playing a part. And I want to dig into the sports psychology stuff. Uh, to understand how certain athletes, especially these professional athletes, could go playing a, a game that they love playing their entire lives. And then ultimately, something happens to them where they can't perform the function that got them to this, especially the professional athlete level. Get, let me give you some examples, and, and then I want to hear your take. Chuck Knobloch. Do you remember Chuck Knobloch, the second baseman in the I don't. Uh, major? Okay, so Chuck Knobloch was an all-star second baseman for the Twins. He went to the Yankees. And uh, here on this website, this is a Sports Illustrated article. Mm -hmm. He was named the 1991 Rookie of the Year in the American League. He became a four-time all-star with the Twins. He then went to the Yankees in 98. And all of a sudden, like in 2000, when the issues really peaked, he couldn't get the ball from second base to first base anymore as a routine play. This was an all-star pitcher. They yeah. call that the yips. There's many examples of the yips. You, you can go to Rick Ankiel, who was a, a rookie, of the league, rookie of the year pitcher with the Cardinals, and they had to ultimately move him to the outfield after maybe in his second year, he started struggling. So let me ask you, uh, Doctor, why, why are these things happening? How are they happening to people at the highest level?
0: Great question. It makes me think of um, Mackie Sasser. Do you remember him? from um, the Mets. He's a catcher who also had the yips.
1: Name sounds familiar.
0: Yeah, he he actually had to um, tap his glove three times before he could uh, return to the pitcher. And it got so bad, it's like this OCD kind of thing. Um, But yeah, so the the question being like, how can somebody who has so much talent and perform so well for so long, all of a sudden have this thing where they can't even throw the ball? you know, sports where there's less super intense physical activity, so like baseball or golf is where you see more of the something called the yips, where it's this real this mental block. Uh, you see it less in, say, like endurance sports like triathlons or, you know, um, in, intense physical activity because the brain doesn't have time to get in your way. Whereas baseball, if you're sitting out there, you're kind of waiting for things to happen. You can get really in your in your head, and you can start um, kind of being your own worst enemy, really. But in the particular case that you mentioned, I'm not super familiar with that. But the yips often is caused by a lot of anxiety, and so if you're in an anxiety-induced state, your your brain is producing a lot of hormones and neurotransmitters that actually kind of freeze you can create this fight flight or freeze kind of function in your body and so in, in baseball for example you can have somebody freeze up because there's so much anxiety that they're actually being slowed down physically by their their anxious state so it's a physiological aspect to the yips um to go deeper in that i the mackie sasser or the mets that i mentioned it's a great story you can check it out on youtube He was actually uh, cured of that many, many years after his career. But sometimes you have to dig deeper into the athlete's background to understand maybe where that problem is coming from. And with Mackie Sasser, it was a childhood trauma that he had never really dealt with. Now, with this other player you mentioned, I don't know, know what the cause was for that, but oftentimes there can be some past trauma related to the yips, which basically it's a, it's a hyper, um, arousal or a hyper reaction to stress that was kind of formed in childhood. And so that, um, an athlete can push past that for years and years and years and, you know, shove it in the background, put it in the back burner, put it on the back burner. And the public doesn't know what's going on. Makes me think also Steve Young of 49ers. He came out with this book called, I think it was called, uh, behind the spiral. Are you familiar with this? Yes, I recall that. Yeah. He actually, um, for years hid debilitating anxiety and he would uh, vomit and wouldn't, he wouldn't sleep for days before games. So he's keeping that all under wraps and he finally just had to get help. So I think there's a lot of athletes out there more than we think that, um, have dealt with some earlier trauma, which, creeps up and affects their performance. Now, it really depends on the athlete. There's a lot of different cases. So it's that combination of that heightened anxiety that disrupts the flow state and could be some other possible issues there.
1: Yeah. It seems to me, Michael, that this would really be more so, this is not anxiety necessarily caused or triggered by the pressure of the game itself. I would imagine that in a vast majority of cases of the athletes you've worked with that you've studied this is caused from some external experience or experiences of childhood, adult life, trauma, um, uh, probably a whole combination of things. But this isn't really tell me if this is correct. The, the yips is probably more so a, an effect of other things outside of the actual sport itself.
0: Yeah, it's you know, it is really a case by case thing, so you, you want to be interviewing the athlete and get. I I think one of the the common mistakes say in sports psychology is rushing to treat the problem before really fully assessing and asking a lot of questions. Now, if, if the aim of sports psychology is to get you to perform better in your sport, which it is um, I think that's great, but there also, you could quote unquote cure somebody and then it could re reoccur. So it's, um, it's really case by case, you want to ask lots of questions um, and it could be childhood experiences, it could be uh, also just genetics, you know, some people are wired more on the anxious end of the spectrum, some people are uh, prone to depression genetically, so there's all, a lot of components come into play. Um, you know, sometimes it could just be the sport that's making them anxious and they're not anxious anywhere else. So it's, it's, it's pretty much, it's case by case, but as, as you're alluding to it, it, it can be complex and not just related to the sport. And you
1: kind of talked about this, that sports where there's really basically fine motor skills, sports where there's intense activity, you call it, but really fine motor skills where you have to have the coordination, the brain's got to be fun, you know, running, riding a bike. I'm not taking away from those people, especially I'm talking to an Olympic uh, type trial person here. You've been doing biking for a long time in your own life. Um, That stuff is still requires extreme athleticism and dedication, but it's not a fine motor type. It's just, it's the repetition. Everything's the exact same in terms of what the way your body's moving. Whereas like you say, you're standing around at second base and you're waiting and you're thinking, and you've got things going on in your personal life and all this trauma that you've been, uh, burying for years and years and the whole world's watching you now. And now, uh oh, here comes the ball. Oh my God. It's actually coming to me. I've got to now pick this up and throw it to first and I'm having a problem. So is that correct? This is really a fine motor skill. Like David Duvall, the golfer, remember that, that case, was on top of the world, and then all of a sudden fell off because something happened where he couldn't get the ball hitting straight anymore.
0: Yeah. So fine motor skills, yes. I would say any sport where you do have time to sit around and think, right, where the, you're overthinking things, that, that gets in the way. So, yeah, so like baseball, um, golf, those are the big ones. Tennis also, yeah. not quite as much, but you see, you've seen tennis matches where someone just kind of falls apart um yeah any anything where you're having time to think <laughs> and yes. the brain the brain can be our, our best friend or our worst enemy if we don't have mastery over it,
1: it and it could and it got you take another example a guy like Shaq everyone knows Shaquille O'Neal couldn't shoot free throws very well right. and there came a period of time where his shooting got so bad mm-hmm. that it was really crippling him uh on the court, they would, they would hack him on purpose. So he'd have to go shoot free throws. You Remember that. Yeah. And he ultimately could have let that cripple the rest of his career or not. And he ended up hiring a, a mental coach and a, and a free throw coach and all these other things. And he fixed it to a certain degree. He wasn't so, you know, so is that what it takes, Michael, in all experiences? Do you have to, how, how do
0: some of these guys go from the yips to ultimately getting rid of it? Yeah. I think it's admitting that, um, that you need some help, right? So it's not a, st- a sign of weakness that you're seeking help. It's a sign of strength. Like, of course I want to get better. It's the same thing of hiring a, a, a particular coach for a, t- a particular aspect of your sport. It's a specialty. Like, yeah, I want to work on my mind and my focus and my concentration in my brain. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not crazy. Um, it's a sign of strength to reach out for help. So in the case of Shaq, yeah, he really benefited from uh, this particular mental performance coach who really helped him focus. Um, And he was actually shooting decent free throws for a while. And then after that kind of not so good, but like he had some pretty good success with it. So yeah, it really just takes normalizing um, reaching for help. And there's this stigma around the word mental, right? So like, Oh, I hired a mental performance coach. Oh, what are you crazy? No. So there needs to be more and more athletes telling their stories about mental health, um, and just destigmatizing it and looking at the brain as just another organ. So it's just like a computer. If you want to, th- I want to make my computer work a little bit better. So that's what it takes: destigmatizing and normalizing things for athletes to really up their game. So you talk about
1: various things in helping these athletes, managing anxiety, finding balance, leveling up. Talk a little bit about your approach when you're dealing with somebody that's experiencing something similar to what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. Um, Like I said before, having a really robust assessment. So the first session, I want to be asking lots of questions. The athlete often will come kind of in a crisis, like, hey, I've got this big event coming up. You know, I need to, I need to figure out what's going on right away. And certainly if I can help kind of put out some fires, absolutely, but um, in my process, I wanna get tons of information so that, and I make that really transparent too. Like I say, hey, I'm gonna ask you lots of questions because I wanna get all the information possible. We wanna find out what's going on. We wanna fix this and have it not come back. So that's the big thing is a lot of good assessment. And I ask them, do you feel say anxious just playing sports? or is there social anxiety? Are you having problems in any kind of major relationship in your life? And so um, there can be a point where I'm doing an assessment and I realize maybe if an athlete has some substance abuse problems or some you know, very high anxiety like panic attacks and things like this, they might be better for psychotherapy first before moving into that more performance-oriented psychology. So, so So again, that
1: real quick, Michael, if you don't mind, if, if you do have to pivot to that first, what does that mean? They may be having to go through some psychotherapy. What exactly does that
0: look like? That looks like kind of repairing, just repairing before progressing, right? So again, doesn't mean someone's crazy. It just means like, um, if there's some more, um, intense symptoms you wanna be working on that repair process before you get them back on the court or on the field or whatever that might be. And also again, normalizing it too, like citing examples of um, say Michael Phelps, who's gotten a lot of psychotherapy and it's really helped him. Uh, Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors has been doing some work on his mental health. Um, you know, Steve Young, like I mentioned, got psychotherapy.
1: Kevin um, Love,
0: uh, I'm, yeah, a, I'm Cleveland, love.
1: yeah, Cavs, yeah.
0: Absolutely, he had panic attacks uh, on the court. Actually, had to leave the court mid-game. Like, think about the embarrassment there and all of that, and then him having the courage to come forward and talk about that. So, so yeah, it's um, it really assessment is the, is really key. Finding out if someone needs repair work before performance work. If they don't need the repair work, let the me next just ask you. Out, to di- to, I'm sorry to her. dig
1: into that a little deeper. When yes. you say repair work, what exactly are these things that they're doing to repair?
0: Yeah. So in the psychotherapy, you want to be exploring the type of psychotherapy that I use. So I do therapy and the coaching with athletes. Kind of, I do both. So athletes will come to me for, for both reasons. Um, my style of psychotherapy is based on cognitive behavioral therapy. So meaning I want to find out, say, for example what are the thoughts or what are the beliefs behind say the panic attack? So Kevin Love, you know, what are, what are his beliefs or what is the self-talk going on there that would make his body accelerate and accelerate and accelerate to the point of a panic attack? Certainly it's physiological, but for therapy, I'd want to get to, first of all, his thoughts and cognitions and have him get a lot of awareness around that. So it could be like, I feel like I'm letting down my team and everyone's going to hate me if I miss a shot. So if there's that much pressure there, we would want to work on reducing that belief. Like, would your team really hate you if you missed a shot or would they want to encourage you? Oh, I guess they want to encourage me, right? So we'd work through that process of just asking real sort of rational questions and grounding them First, or or, before, or would
1: they maybe even say, "Hey, I don't feel so bad about my miss shot now." Kevin just missed one, right? Right. What we often think about the are internalizing it. What the whatever else is thinking about us. In fact, what they're typically doing is they're taking that event of Kevin's miss shot and then they're internalizing it to their own situation.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Rarely do people think so much about us. It's much more they're thinking about themselves. Right. And we can get caught in that trap of, you know, putting so much pressure on ourselves. And that is, uh, and that's ego. That's a form of egotism of it's all about me, right? Certainly the intentions are good. I don't want to let down my team, but the reality is uh, your teammates are going to support you. Even if you have the yips, they want you to get better, right? Absolutely. Okay. So that's
1: your, that's your psycho. That's the kind of the psychotherapy you're, you're trying to dig into what is really the the self-talk aspect. What's causing this? What are you building on? Building blocks, building blocks, compounding, all those kind of things. And then once you kind of sort through some of that stuff, how do you transition it over back to the uh,
0: sports psyche side? Right. That's, that's difficult. And that's delicate because you've done the repair work. And the healing has just happened. So if the old, belief, old system was whenever I make a free throw, for example, go up to free throw, uh, if I miss, it's the end of the world. That's kind of the old thinking in the old system. If we've healed that and they now believe in the new system, which is um, everyone supports me, I'm going to try my best, that's still really new. And so what I tell the athlete is that you're still going to feel anxious because that old system has been reinforced for so long that we're going not going to expect miracles right away in this we've done the repair work it's kind of like a freshly paved road you want to be you know careful driving over it at first and it's going to get harder and firmer and firmer so that i i give people a lot of education really transparent behind the curtain like here's what to expect right And keep going out there, keep showing up. The anxiety is is lying to you, right? Breathe through it, work through it. Always tell yourself, remind yourself of the new philosophy, right? And if you, just repetition, it's like a new muscle. You repeat it, you repeat it, repeat it. And it's really key to give the athlete tons of education on the process. Like, here's what to expect. It may take months for you to get back to your, your old self.
1: Yes. Like, for example, back to the second basement or yeah. back to the pitcher, yeah. you're going to have those th- thoughts where you have to tap your glove or the ball's coming at you. And you're I played baseball growing up. I remember I would play second base. Sometimes I'd get nervous. I'm like, oh, God, here comes the ball. Yeah. And I was decent. You know, I, it never got I never went to this level where it gets out of control. I never went to the professional athlete level, of course. But um, you, you you're working with them to say, OK, here the thoughts are going to still be there. Just because you're working with me one-on-one doesn't mean that everything's great. Right. Be prepared for these thoughts. And then when they do come in, you're helping them kind of recalculate or recalibrate what they're thinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's important to point out that the, the negative thinking is never going to go away. But it's more, much more about, and, and, and I tell people that's just your brain. Like your brain, essentially our brains are outdated software brains are amazing, but they're basically still built for being sort of like a hunter gatherer or like caveman. Right. So it's, it's wired for survival, not for thriving. Mm. So that's what I, that's what I tell athletes is that you're never not going to feel negative. You're never not going to have doubt. It's just you continuing to be kind of like the puppet master. Like, oh, I notice that my brain is giving me these signals of anxiety. Well, that makes sense. I'm in this intense situation. It's not my fault. Right? So having the kind of that higher level observer mindset can be really helpful. And then just telling the athletes, the more you practice and push through the anxiety, the, the more it'll reinforce the fact that nothing terrible is going to happen. And then slowly the anxiety will start to diminish. The physiological symptoms will slowly over time diminish, but they're never going to go away. Right. And I think that's kind of the fallacy sometimes of sports psychology of like, Hey, we're going to cure you. Or there's something wrong with you. If you have negative habits, it's like, no, it's, it's just the brains, the way we're set up, you absolutely can have mastery over it, but it's never good. The signals are never going to go away.
1: And the fact that they, uh ultimately are being told that by you and being coached and realize, okay, this is, this is here to stay. I mean, this is, I, I have nothing to do but accept these negative things, the self-doubt. This is part of the game. This is part of life. This is part of sports. So I think that that's probably a huge thing because some guys maybe think, well, they eventually when I'm, I'm, when I'm cured, everything's going to go away and then they never get there. Cause those negative thoughts, like you say, are part of the game. Right, And that probably adds more anxiety and more frustration to them. So knowing that, right. Is a huge thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and to be clear too. So it's like, um, it's not that you're going to be stuck with your current level of anxiety or negativity. It's more like you're going to be like a Buddhist monk who I would imagine a Buddhist monk would have problems occasionally with anxiety and anger and all these things, but he's just quicker to catch it and and right the ship. So it's about catching yourself or catching the brain misbehaving, if you will, and setting the course straight. And you get quicker and quicker at doing that. That's beautiful. That's absolutely yeah. beautiful. Give us
1: one or two examples then, uh, with, with maybe some that, are, that really stick out to you with your experience, your clients. Talk about who he, what kind of athletes these were and, and what they were experiencing and how you helped them through.
0: Sure thinking of a baseball player I worked with um, who had a lot of anxiety, a lot of anxiety. And um, we did two types of work. We did some repair work where there was some, um, some childhood trauma and got that, that repaired to a level where he felt more confident in the sport and then transitioned more into the performance-based psychology. And, and with that uh, we worked on what was uh, it was a mission statement. So like his deepest reason for doing, for doing baseball. And that's something I do with a lot of athletes is he wrote down like this kind of spiritual um, attachment to baseball. He loved it so much and, and printed it out and framed it. So it was like, this is almost like baseball is almost like a religion or like a mission. And that really helped reduce anxiety because it was less about him and more about serving baseball. And that was that was really really helpful. Um, another what, thing, what was
1: causing him problems, Michael, in baseball? What was what was his issue?
0: Well, um, yeah, to not to reveal too much personal information, but I'll say that it was um, a lot of pregame anxiety, um, problems with striking out, um, nothing with really with the yips, but more so at bat, more with batting.
1: Mm, okay, just just the fear of having to get up there and.
0: Yeah, and, yeah. and swing the bat almost, almost like super nervous, and you know would he just wouldn't wouldn't be swinging and, and all, sure. all that. Stuff.
1: Body's yeah. frozen, the brain's not calculating with the body, the timings off, all that kind of stuff. Okay,
0: yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was. Um, we got him really did the repair work. Number one, second, we got him grounded in his philosophy, so he can remind himself why he's on that field. So win or lose, home run or strike out. I'm here to serve as a role model, an example of how beautiful baseball is. And that, that helped so that if he failed, it was like, Hey, even in failure, I can be a good sport and people are going to clap and I can actually feel good about just being part of this beautiful sport. So we got him grounded in that mission. And then specifically we worked on uh, his batting where it was, uh, we actually tapped into his anger, which is, which is interesting. And, not in a way to be like a bad sport, but more to pitcher versus batter. So that he would focus on actually psyching out the pitcher, not in a bad way, but more of like, and we got this again, back to more philosophy. He said, every time I challenge the pitcher and if I can get a home run off of this guy, I'm upping his level, I'm leveling him up. I'm pulling like a rising tide lifts all boats. Right, so we got really spiritual with him, and so he got he got good at you know staring down the pitcher, and just making it a battle between them. And he you know then he'd just crack it, and um, that was helpful too of using anger in um in a positive way.
1: Very interesting. Yeah. So he actually, you guys almost turned it into a mental ba- mental game of sorts. Yeah, a, a game yeah. within the game. Hey, we're, I'm going to create my own little game yeah. against that pitcher. And that's going to allow me maybe even to be distracted away from this anxiety that I'm feeling. I'm playing a game now. I can't, I can't focus on anything else. And that helped him that, that eased a lot of the anxieties.
0: Yeah. And it was specifically tapping into his anger, like getting like mad. I'm going to show this picture.
1: Interesting. Okay. So tapping into some negative emotions could end up being a good thing.
0: Sure. Because it's just a game, right? As long as you don't charge them out and, Start a bench-clearing brawl, right? <laughs> it's okay as long as you're not going to do that. Um, Reggie Jackson had—I forget the quote—but he has some some famous quote about you know the batter versus the pitcher. And he he speaks to that. He talks about that about how he would just you know look at that pitcher right in right in his soul and just like like I'm gonna I'm gonna beat you, mm-hmm. um, and it worked.
1: Give us one more example. That was baseball. What, a, Maybe another sport.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, I do. Um, you know, my background is in cycling. I used to you know, race bikes quite a bit. Um, and so I worked with some cyclists. Um, I can give you an example of, um, this actually applies to a lot of sports. You've heard of like the, the champion in training, the person who shines in practice and just Doing amazing things in practice, and then when they get to the game, they kind of choke. Yes, right. Yes. So, uh, working with the number of cyclists who had that issue of uh, they would just be superstar trainers; they'd crush it on all the training rides, beat everyone on the training rides. When it came to the race, they were underperforming, and it it came it came down to this kind of idea of of a, imposter syndrome. You've heard this before. Yes. Like, I, I don't quite belong here. Right. And there's some, some sort of doubts about that where they, they're sort of afraid to shine. Like, kind of like they how, didn't how feel, they didn't feel that way in practice. Not because in practice. practice
1: didn't count, but once it got to the actual competition where the results yeah. matter, they, yeah. they felt that way. Okay. I'm following you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very common in all sports. Like it, I'm sure everyone could relate to this. Um, and it, it, it got down to this, we would get, to, get them to the point of, I do belong here. And we would get them, we we'd get the, the, the athlete out of the ego again. So it's this ego problem of kind of reverse ego. We think egotism is like, I'm the best. I'm going to show up at this, at this uh, race or match or whatever. And I'm better than everyone else. And you're braggadocious and all that. That's one side of the ego. The other side is, oh, don't look at me. I'm not good enough. You know, I don't deserve to be here. That's a form of egotism too. And I would, I point all this out during when I'm talking with them. And I would say, you're being selfish by not performing at your best at these events because you have so much to offer. You have inspiration. Imagine if you won and you inspired people who are watching this this bicycle race, like, oh my God, this guy, you know, he was so athletic and he came around this corner beautifully. It's like, you're being selfish by withholding your, your brightness and your talent. And that just like resonated like, oh, my God, you're right. And that kind of like lit a fire in them. And they're able to able to do that. So it became just really tapping into something beyond themselves.
1: Yes. Yeah. How selfish. How, how, how is that selfish, though? I'm trying to follow. Cause they're yeah. not, they're not hitting their potential, but why is that? Why is that being selfish versus just not, not letting people see their max potential?
0: Yeah. It's being selfish in that every athlete who shows up to an event is there to offer something. You're offering um, an example to your teammates. They could be inspired by your performance. Your competitor could be inspired by you. You're going to up their game. The more higher you perform, they're gonna to want to try to beat you the next time. So you're again, uh, rising tide lifts all boats. So you're being selfish by underperforming because you're withholding your gifts from the world and you're not inspiring other people and not inspiring your teammates. And you're not, you're not being that role model. Mm. Um, I think we forget how much people, when they see us succeed, um, can be inspired by that, right? And if you're not inspired by that, you're like, oh, th- th- then you have another problem with the ego, right? Because it's not about you. It- it's about growing and, and raising, uh, raising the tide with-, with all the boats. That damn ego, man. Yep. <laughs> it's always there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's
1: always causing problems. Yeah. Is, the ego, is the ego involved in every situation that you deal with? When you deal with a client, regardless of the background that they're coming to you with or the issues is the ego always at least some, somewhat a factor?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, the ego is not a bad thing. It's just, it's just a thing. It's just part of us. It's more of that um, identity, more survival kind of thing. So it serves a purpose and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just having mastery over it, separating yourself, like your true self from your ego, right? So if, if you can witness yourself, maybe being a poor sport or maybe cussing someone out during a, you know, whatever. And you go, Oh, Whoa, that was interesting. Like that was my ego. I was getting into that sort of, you know, base behavior. Um, but yeah, it is the ego is, it's a useful, um, what is it? A a good servant and a lousy master.
1: (laughs) Well, it's, it's, it's the cause of so many conflicts in our lives. Mm -hmm. It's, It's always there. And a lot of people all have a problem, when they actually make a stance or a position and they don't want, and they realize they're wrong, but they won't tell themselves they're wrong. They won't let themselves see that they're wrong. They won't see, they stick to that, that, that assertion or the bias that they've created. Right. And then the, their ego gets in the way where they just won't admit defeat right. or admit they made a mistake.
0: Right. 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 Yeah, and again, that's just a primal sort of survival thing. Hey, I'm a cornered animal. I've got to defend myself at all costs, even if it doesn't make sense. But we're living in the modern world. And you know, it's, um, it's a sign of strength, really, to admit that you're wrong about something. And that again, that's an example for other people. Like, oh, look, uh, Michael just admitted he was wrong about this thing and just learned something from Nate. You know? And it's just like, oh, well, that's cool. And, they just, and people witness that. And that sets an example for other people.
1: Yeah. You want to talk about being selfish, right? That's, that's selfish right there. Not admitting when you're wrong. Actually, if you admit you're wrong, it's such a rewarding feeling to me. I actually love, I'll say one thing that I've I've, thankfully I've never had an issue with is if I'm wrong about something, I'll be the first to raise my hand. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for some reason. I've never had a problem with that. And in fact, it's like you said, it's a pretty thrilling feeling at times. It's liberating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, well, and then I, the people around you feel safe and they go, oh, wait a second. Like you just said, oh, it's not so bad to admit when you're wrong. We're not perfect. Right, it, right. it opens up for a safe space and, and positive, healthy dialogue.
0: It, it definitely does. You know, and I, I, I catch myself wanting to be right. Like I'm, I, it's, it's this observer thing where I'll catch, I will catch myself, right? Listen to the word and the language there. Um, And I go, Oh, that's interesting. Right. I was kind of on autopilot there. Mm -hmm. I was trying to make a point and what I should have done is just ask more questions. So catching yourself is, is really key. And I I think that's a great message for, for everyone athletes as well Is like, it's okay to catch yourself getting off course, just get back on course.
1: So before we finish it off, this has been a a fantastic conversation, very insightful. Uh, You work in the Bay area, you work with mostly men um, in that, Los An- San Francisco, California. Are you also working with people outside of the state with, via Zoom or other technologies?
0: Yeah. So with my psychotherapy practice, I'm licensed in um, California, Florida, and Wisconsin. So um, I can only practice with people who live in those areas. With my coaching, and that's nationwide. And um, currently, I'm based in Naples, Florida. So I have lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for a long time, have a lot of clients there. Um, but I'm currently in Florida. Uh so yeah, with the coaching, it's nationwide. With psychotherapy, it's it's California, Florida, and Wisconsin.
1: And, and talk briefly about some of the, the services that you offer, the types of issues that you're dealing with, et cetera.
0: Yeah. So with the counseling psychotherapy, it's a lot of athletes are coming to me for anxiety. So I specialize in those in anxiety issues. On the more of the coaching side it, um, it's athletes wanting to level up where they're feeling kind of stuck at a certain level and they want to break through. Um, that's a specialty of mine. So those are, I would say the specialties, um, and it's, it's about getting in touch. And if I, if the the particular issue is outside of my purview, I I network and I want to help people set up, get set up with someone who's going to help them. The main thing is, is reaching out for help. Like it's okay to do that. It's a sign of strength if in doubt, reach out, ask for help, do a couple sessions. And if it's, if you're, you know, cured, um, that's cool too, right away, whatever works, you know, get some help.
1: Nobody's ever, I would find it hard to believe that anyone's ever gone for help and then said, I am so mad at myself that I actually went for help. That's
0: got to be a really rare result. I mean, there's nothing bad that can come from this. Exactly right. You got nothing to lose, everything to gain.
1: Hey, uh, where can people find you, Michael, online? Social Yeah, so,
0: yeah just uh, just Google my name. It's Michael Seely. It's spelled C E E L Y. I'm um, doing a lot of stuff on Instagram. Um, you'll find my my therapy site and then also my coaching site just by googling my name. Beautiful, and it's
1: SeelyCounseling.com to the uh, main website, which we'll, we will link here in the show notes. Thank you, sir, for uh, shedding light into this awesome topic. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Appreciate the
1: opportunity.